Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Morning, church. Good to see you all. My name is Pete, and uh, if you have a Bible, you can open up to that passage we just read, Mark chapter 4. It's also printed uh, for you in your bulletin. Um, I recently saw an interview with uh, Van Jones, who, uh, if you know, is the African-American lawyer and political commentator who was uh, speaking to a room full of college students at the University of Chicago a few years ago. And they asked him his thought on this growing trend of college students demanding that their university campuses be safe spaces. And uh, his response was pretty surprising. Um, I'll read you a little bit of what he said. He says, there's two ideas about safe spaces. One is a very good idea and one is a terrible idea. The idea of being physically safe on a campus, not being subject to sexual harassment, physical abuse, or being targeted with hate speech or violence, of course, I'm perfectly fine with that. But there's another view that's, I need to be safe ideologically. I need to be safe emotionally. I need to feel good all the time, and if someone says something that I don't like, that's a problem. I think that's a terrible idea for the following reason. So Jones goes on to tell this room full of college students, I don't want you to be safe ideologically. I don't want you to be safe emotionally. I want you to be strong. I'm not going to pave the jungle for you. Put on some boots and learn how to deal with adversity. I'm not going to take all the weights out of the gym for you. That's the whole point of the gym. I want you to be offended and upset, and then to learn how to speak back, because that's what we need from you in these communities. And so, of course, not everybody agrees with Van Jones, but that day, this crowd of students on a largely left-leaning campus bursts into cheers when he says, I don't want you to be safe, I want you to be strong. And obviously it's a touchy subject with some nuance, but even for those of us that don't fully agree with his conclusion, I think that all of us, if we're honest, can hear the wisdom in what he's saying. And it seems to me that from our story in Mark chapter 4, that Jesus actually has a pretty similar approach with his disciples. So here's what I mean. They're out on a boat in the middle of the sea, and this huge storm comes up, and the disciples, understandably, are feeling unsafe, physically unsafe because of the storm, but that's not the thing that they're most afraid of. Because when they go to Jesus and they find him sleeping in the middle of this storm, their question for him, which is found in verse 38, and is really more of an accusation, is, teacher, Don't you care if we drown? And so, yeah, they're feeling physically unsafe because of the storm. But even worse than that, they're feeling emotionally unsafe because apparently Jesus, their rabbi, 
doesn't care at all about what they're going through. If you think about it, throughout the story of the Bible, storms, and specifically stormy seas, play a pretty major role. Um, Think about the theme. Think about the symbolism of what the storm and the sea represents. In Genesis 1, the earth was formless and empty, covered by dark waters. In Genesis 6, a great flood covers everything in sight and destroys almost all life on earth. In the Exodus, the Israelites are fleeing slavery, and the Egyptian army that's chasing them is swallowed up by the Red Sea. And then you have this story of Jonah, the prophet, who, by the way, is the only other guy in the Bible who falls asleep on a boat in the middle of a storm, worth paying attention to. Jonah's running away from God, and he ends up being thrown overboard and swallowed up by a huge fish in the sea. So you notice that over and over again in the story of the scriptures, the sea represents chaos and death, the greatest threat to human life and flourishing is the sea. And so the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all tell this story of Jesus, and they tell it in the same way. In this tradition of the storm as representing chaos and death, storms are why we feel vulnerable. Storms are why we feel insecure and unsafe in this fallen and broken world. Because the truth is that the possibility of storms of all kinds means that there's really no such thing as a safe space, is there? Sometimes people are surprised that as a pastor, Jen and I have chosen to send our kids to public school. And they wonder, don't your kids get exposed to to ideas and other things that aren't what your family believes. And, uh, and they do. But the truth is that we've concluded that you can't teach your kids to follow Jesus and worship safety. And so what Jesus wants for his disciples isn't to create an emotionally or ideologically safe space. He wants to create in them an inner strength so that they can become the kind of people the world needs most. People who are secure in their identities and resilient in the face of storms. And apparently, in order to make strong disciples, Jesus wants us to face our fears. So look at verse 40. After they wake him up and they accuse him of not caring about their safety, Jesus has a question for them. And that question is, why are you so afraid? That's what Jesus wants to know. I mean, they're basically in the middle of a hurricane, and they're freaking out. And Jesus goes, so what are you guys afraid of? Why are you so afraid? And to us, it seems crazy. It seems pretty obvious that, of course, like, they're afraid. They thought they're going to die. They thought their ship was going down. But here's the thing, I don't think Jesus was actually that concerned about their fear of dying. 
if the lesson you take away is that Christians shouldn't fear death, I don't think that's actually what's happening here. In fact, if you know Jesus and you know his story, he took death very seriously. When his friend Lazarus died, Jesus went to the graveside and he wept and he was angry at death. And then in the face of his own death, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is dreading the pain of dying so greatly, we know he begins sweating blood. And as he hangs there on the cross, dying this horrible, excruciating death, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus isn't a fan of death. He doesn't take it lightly. And I don't think he actually expects his followers to either. And the reason is that in the story of God, the story of the Bible, death isn't part of the way things are supposed to be. So it's natural to fear death because death is an unnatural thing. And yet, it's unavoidable. They say that the stats about death in our country are startling. Ten out of ten Americans die. And some of us, some of you here today, are living with a constant awareness of this reality. Because of whatever is happening in your body or in your life, you live with this sense that death is imminent. Others of us are in the process of grieving the death of someone close to us who we loved. And we know that millions of people around the world face death on a daily basis in the face of poverty, hunger, famine, war, persecution. So it's inevitable, but the truth is, for many of us, death isn't something we think about a whole lot. It's definitely not something we like to think about. But the truth is, a hundred years from now, you and everybody you know are going to be dead. All of us. And um, that should be a sobering thought for us. That should produce a fear, if you will, a healthy kind of fear in us that says, I've only got one chance at this thing. This is the one life that I've been given. My days are numbered. This isn't going to last forever. And so I don't think Jesus rebukes his disciples for a fear of dying. But I think there's something else that he's calling out in them. I think he rebukes them because what they are making of the storm. Here's what I mean. When it comes to the way they're interpreting that moment of chaos and suffering in the midst of the sea, they look at the storm and they see it as a threat to the character of God instead of looking at God and seeing his character as a threat to the storm. So the question, of course, would be for us, when the storm comes, not if, but when the storm comes, which will it be? I look at the storm and I go, God, don't you even care? I thought you were good. I thought you were loving. 
I thought I could trust you. I thought you loved me and have a wonderful plan for my life. But this storm is causing you to call God's character into question. So our view of God, or whatever it is that we believe, really believe about God, really can't truly be seen when things are going smoothly in our lives. If we really want to know what our true view of God is, the only way we're going to find out is by facing a storm. Because during the storm, we question God, but it turns out God really has some questions for us. How many coffee lovers do we have? Any coffee fans? By the way, I don't think Scott's here this morning, but Scott Witham is part of our church family. He owns the best coffee shop in Bend, Lone Pine. And uh, he does uh, so much for us, making sure that every single week at Antioch, when we get together, we don't drink church coffee, but we drink good coffee. So give Scott some love next time you see him. Um, here's what you need to know about me. When it comes to coffee, I'm really weird because I genuinely do appreciate a good, high-quality, perfectly roasted, perfectly brewed cup of single-origin Lone Pine coffee. I love it. Um, I also really like bad coffee. I like them both. Um, like, I've had a cup of the world's most expensive coffee in northern Thailand, and it's called Black Ivory, because before they roast them, they feed the beans to elephants who then digest them, and then the beans are harvested from the dung, and they have this really smooth and amazing flavor. It's $100 a cup. They call it Crappuccino, and it's unbelievable. Um, I enjoy good coffee. I also like church coffee. I have, like, no problem filling up a styrofoam cup at a truck stop or a 7-Eleven or drinking cold coffee from the day before. Like, I like both. But I know not everybody's like that. And sometimes, if you really want to know the quality of the coffee or the nature, the specifics of a particular roast or a particular blend or whatever, um, how do you figure out what kind of coffee these beans are going to make. If you have a bag of coffee beans and when you want to know what that batch is going to be all about, you can look at the beans, you can smell them, maybe taste them a little bit, but you're really not going to learn very much about those beans. If you really want to know what kind of aromas and flavors these beans have, what do you have to do? You have to throw them in the grinder. You have to grind them up. You have to crush them and smash them rub them down basically to a powder. And then, then you can smell it. Do you know there's over 800 different aromas in coffee? And most of them you can't smell until you grind the beans. And then, of course, there's a whole bunch more that you can't smell until you actually brew it. And so here's the point. If you really want to know what you really believe about God. You have to go through a storm. When life is good and things are going your way, there's really no way to know what you actually believe. 
You have to go in the grinder. And you have to face some fire. Jesus, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care that we're going to die? They're interpreting God based on their experience of the storm instead of interpreting the storm based on their experience of God. And it becomes clear that these guys, even though they've chosen to follow him as their rabbi, they still don't know who he is. Which is why Jesus goes on in verse 40 and he asks them, do you still have no faith? In other words, do you still not get it? Or you still don't see who I am? You don't know who I am? These guys have seen some things. They've seen Jesus cast out evil spirits and display supernatural power over demons. They've seen Jesus touch a man with leprosy, which at that time was an incurable disease, and immediately the man's skin clears up and he's healed. They've seen Jesus go up to a man who was paralyzed from the neck down, and Jesus touches him and tells him to stand up and walk, and he does. These guys have seen Jesus do all of these things, but they still have no faith. They still don't know who he is. Now, here's what's interesting to me about this exchange. The disciples are afraid of Jesus, and he goes, so why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Aren't you starting to see the truth about who I am? And you would think that as they start to piece things together, as they start to realize that every evil spirit, every sickness, every natural disaster that Jesus has faced, he has shown himself powerful over all of it, you would think that they would start to say, oh, I feel so much better now. It's so nice to be in such good hands. I feel so safe and secure when I'm with you. But no, how do they respond when Jesus reminds them of all they've seen him do? Verse 41 says, they were terrified. <laughs> so notice the progression of their inner world. First they're afraid, and then Jesus <clears throat> begins to interact with them, and the result is, they go from being afraid to being terrified, doubly afraid. I used to listen to a lot of Ben Harper, if you remember him, and he has this one song that starts, I'm more afraid of living than I am scared to die, and I'm more afraid of falling than I am of flying high. If you know Ben Harper, you know he knows a lot about flying high, but for many of us, <laughs> It's not so much that we're afraid of death. It's that we're afraid of life before death. What kind of pain are we going to go through? What are we going to lose in this life? What are we going to feel? Because the truth is we know, and maybe the older we get, the more we know, that it's just hard to be human. Life is relentlessly difficult. Sometimes I just sit back and go, man, why does everything have to be so hard? Everything. 
This morning I was trying to fix the toilet in our house before I left, and I had it all done, and I ran one kind of test flush to make sure it was good, and I pull the handle, and water just spills out all over the bathroom floor. There's a little gasket they want you to put in between the tank and the throne, in case you don't know. I'm like, why does it have to be so hard? It's just a toilet, right? Over and over again, we know that it's hard to be human. And not just when things are really tough, when in the face of disadvantage and suffering and loss. But even when life is good, and sometimes, maybe even as crazy as this sounds, especially when life is good. There's a psychologist named Madeline Levine who works primarily with children of wealthy American families. And a few years ago, she wrote a book called The Price of Privilege. And basically what she finds is that teenagers that grow up in affluent homes are three times more likely to commit self-harm than the national average. Or another example, with all that we know about the realities of systemic racism and systemic sexism in our country, how do we explain that white men make up almost 70% of suicides in the U.S.? Privilege has a price. And we're more afraid of living than we are of dying. But I don't think it's just that the disciples are afraid of living. I think the reason they go from afraid to terrified is because they're starting to get it. They're starting to actually figure out who Jesus really is. They're starting to, but they still don't know. In the final verse, verse 41, the disciples say to one another, Who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. Now look at the way Mark tells this story. They aren't given an answer. This story basically ends with a question. Now, let me give you a little bit of Bible geek stuff real quick because it's really fascinating. The Gospel of Mark uses a literary device called the Messianic secret motif. And if you pay attention, there's this thread that runs through the entire narrative of Mark's Gospel where the fact that Jesus isn't just another rabbi but is actually the long-awaited promised Messiah of Israel, that fact is kept secret or kept hidden from almost everybody in the story. Mark tells his readers, us, who Jesus is, but the characters in the story, other than the demons, don't actually know who Jesus is yet. And several times, Jesus does something miraculous, but he tries to keep it a secret. And so Mark uses this messianic secret motif to shape us as the readers and to shape our understanding and our imagination about the idea of Jesus, the Messiah. So in movies, this is called dramatic irony. And it's when the filmmaker tells the story in a way that the audience knows something that the characters in the film don't. And when it's done really well, 
dramatic irony pulls us into the story to the point where we're like yelling at the screen, you know, don't open that door or whatever, because we know what's on the other side. Or like when we all know that Walter White is actually Heisenberg, but his brother-in-law Hank has no idea. It makes great TV. That's what Mark does with Jesus in his gospel. As readers, we know from the very first line of the book, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. We know, but the other characters in the story aren't in on the secret yet. And so over and over again, people have encounters with Jesus, and they're left asking this question, who is this? And so we already talked about the role that the sea plays in the story of the Bible. That over and over again in the scriptures, the sea is portrayed as this force of chaos and death. But there's something else we would need to pay attention to also. And that is that over and over again in the scriptures, Yahweh, or the God of Israel, is portrayed as the only one who has power over the seas. Back to Genesis 1, Yahweh is the one who hovers over the deep and speaks light into existence and brings beauty and order out of the chaos. In Genesis 6, Yahweh is the one who decides when the flood begins and when it ends. In the Exodus, Yahweh is the one who parts the sea for the Israelites and then closes it back up for the Egyptians. In Jonah, Yahweh is the God of land and sea, the one who sends the storm and then calms it. If you think about the Psalms, the prayer book, of the Bible, at least 15 of the Psalms portray Yahweh as the God who calms the seas. And so what Mark's doing in this story is confronting our shallow or one-dimensional understanding of Jesus. And instead, he's revealing the truth about who Christ really is. In verse 39, Jesus got up rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Who has that kind of power? I mean, Jesus talks to the weather the same way I talk to my dog. But the difference is the weather obeys and the water becomes like glass. And the disciples see this one with power over the seas. And of course they go, who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. They still don't know the answer, but we do. What is the answer? Who is this? It's Yahweh. It's the God of the land and the sea, the one who brings beauty out of chaos, the one who calms the storm. In the Hebrew scriptures, the only one who has the power over the seas is God himself. So Mark is letting us in on this secret that Jesus does what only God can do, which means he isn't just a rabbi. He is Yahweh in the flesh. He is the human embodiment of the creator God. 
And so when we read a story about Jesus, we're reading a story about God. And of all of our questions and speculations about if there's a God, what's that God like? Jesus is the answer to all those questions. Jesus is what God is like. And so when we see Jesus doing these miracles in the gospel, there's more going on there than just impressing a crowd. We need to understand that Jesus doesn't do random acts of kindness. He performs signs of the kingdom. He's demonstrating for the whole world the glory of God. And so back to this question of why did the disciples go from afraid to terrified when they realize that even the wind and waves obey Jesus? Well, again, I think the reason they're terrified is because they're starting to get it. They're starting to see who this rabbi might really be. And if that's true, then their whole life is going to be changed forever. If Jesus is Yahweh, then that means they are standing in the presence of God. If Jesus is Yahweh, then when they look at him, they're seeing the face of God. If Jesus is Yahweh, then when he speaks, they're hearing the voice of God. And the result is, that doesn't feel like a very safe space. Not because God isn't good or loving. But because if the wind and the waves obey Jesus, then we're going to have to also. Like if Jesus really is who the Bible says he is, then that means he can ask anything of us. If Jesus is Yahweh, then every single part of of my life, my work, my finances, my politics, my sexuality, all of it belongs to him. If Jesus is actually the God of the universe, then I don't get to pick and choose which parts of my life I'm going to give him access to. He gets it all. If Jesus is Yahweh, that means I'm no longer in charge of my life. I'm under new management. There's a new king in town, and he gets to call the shots. Which that means sometimes to follow him means I need to leave where I am and go where he's going. That may mean I need to do things I'd rather not do or even believe things I'd rather not believe or live in ways that I would rather not live. Jesus is Yahweh then he's going to confront me at times. He's going to call out my greed, my self-centeredness, my addiction to comfort, my need to please people, my indifference to injustice, my apathy to suffering. And if he is the God of the seas and the wind and the waves obey him, then I have to also. That's what it means to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
It's to turn and to give our lives over to Jesus and to pledge our allegiance to him above anything else. Which, let's just be honest, that is a scary thing. That doesn't always feel like a safe space. So why would we do it? Why would we surrender to him? Let me close with this. Remember, I mentioned a bunch of places where the sea shows up, and all those examples are really towards the beginning of the Bible. But there's also a place where the sea shows up at the very end of the Bible. And it's in this apocalyptic vision that's given to the Apostle John. We have it in the book of Revelation. And John's given this vision into the future of human history, and what he sees is the world that is to come. And God gives him a sneak peek of the day when Jesus' prayer is answered in its fullness. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. John gets a glimpse of this new creation that's breaking in. And in Revelation 21 and 22, the final two chapters of the Bible, we're told that in this new world that God's making, there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And then in Revelation 21.1, listen to what John sees. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. That's why we can trust Jesus. He's the only one who has the power to turn the sea into dry land. Which means that when we find ourselves in spaces that don't feel safe, like some of us do today, we can trust that Jesus is with us in the storm. And that's where we're made strong. Father God, creator of heaven and earth, God of the land and the sea, we acknowledge that our very life is yours, is a gift from you, and we want to steward it well. We want to live well. We want to die well. Father, we thank you that you alone have the power over the storms in our world and in our lives. And for those of us that find ourselves navigating various kinds of storms this morning, we thank you that you aren't far, but that you are with us. And we would invite you to use the storms that we've been through, that we're going through, that we will go through to form the image and character and love of your son more deeply in us. Make us strong that we might become the kind of people you've created and redeemed us to be, the kind of people the world needs most. For the glory of your name.